Now we'll turn it over to Drs. Eaton and Springer, who will take us through substance use disorder. Great. Thanks so much. Um, I am Ellen Eaton. I'll be joined with Dr. Sandy Springer here, and we'll go ahead and get started. All right, our disclosures are listed here. And let's start with some learning objectives. Um, after this presentation, we hope that you'll be able to screen for substance use disorder in HIV prevention and treatment settings, initiate treatment for opioid use disorder, and consider alternative plans to help patients with substance use disorders and HIV such that they can stay retained in HIV care. So we'll start with a case that I saw last month. This is a 46-year-old man who was admitted to the hospital with an acute stroke. Um, he had left-sided weakness, slurred speech, and found to have an ischemic stroke. On universal screening, he was positive for HIV and subsequently had a CD4 cell count of 127 and a viral load of 18,000 copies per mil. Um, once we went and discussed with him his HIV diagnosis, he reported being diagnosed initially seven years ago, but never sought care because his wife was then sick and she has subsequently passed away. Um, he was seen by our team and after counseling and discussion of the risk and benefits, he was agreeable to starting ART and he was discharged to an inpatient rehab down the hall, um, another portion of our hospital for physical therapy. On day seven at his inpatient rehab, he returned from a smoking break, developed acute somnolence, had decreased respiratory rate, altered mental status, a MET team was called and they delivered naloxone due to pinpoint pupils and his um, altered mental status. And he returned um, pretty quickly to his usual state of health. Um, when the addiction medicine team was consulted, he reported that he had insufflated fentanyl prior to the episode of overdose. So in hearing this case, um, which of the following is a substance use related outcome that could have been prevented by integrating substance use, screening and treatment into the routine care for this patient? A, ischemic stroke, B, a delay in ART initiation, C, failure to engage in treatment, D, advanced HIV, or E, all of the above. Which of the, which of the following could have been prevented by substance use screening? and whenever you're ready to post our results. All right, great. Easy question, but just to highlight for you all, all the various touch points and outcomes that could have been prevented had we screened this individual earlier, perhaps seven years ago when he was first diagnosed with HIV. All right, so we're gonna move along here. Um, SBIRT is a term many of us are familiar with, but it refers to screening and brief intervention and initiation, referral of medication treatment for substance use. So this is the notion that we should be incorporating in various settings, including harm reduction, jails, criminal legal settings, ERs, inpatient ward services, and our outpatient HIV clinics with a rapid screening for substance use because we know that most of our patients come from high prevalent populations. Um, as an example, there is a NIDA assist tool that um, I recommend I use. It is on the left. It is two questions, very straightforward, validated, um, that are have been validated in criminal legal settings, for example. Um, 
prescription drug use for non-medical reasons is one question we ask, and we ask the frequency um, after we've asked about substance use. And then you can reflex, if positive, to on the right, this rapid opioid dependent screening, which gets a little bit more granular detail about the type and nature and frequency of substance use. Um, I did want to bring up that Dr. Cindy Springer did develop this, and it has been used, as I mentioned, in, in very vulnerable patients with a criminal legal history and involvement. So very helpful for our patients where stigma, low health literacy may be involved in screening um, social desirability bias, which is very common in our patients as well. So here's an example where you can easily screen with two questions, again, on the left with this validated tool, and then if positive, reflexively um, drill down on opioid use specifically to rapidly diagnose. And then if you follow patients across the screening continuum on the left, doing the quick screen, quick screen followed by the rapid opioid dependency scale. And then if positive, we would encourage you all to consider starting medications for opioid use disorder. And we're gonna tell you a little bit about how that can look. Um, case two, um, you again have your 46 year old male. He was admitted to the hospital. Um, he had this overdose event, was successfully resuscitated. Um, after he is resuscitated and you get this additional history of fentanyl use, what is the next best step? Do you A, refer him to a methadone clinic on discharge, B, offer him buprenorphine co-formulated with naloxone now, C, prescribe long-acting naltrexone, or D, none of the above because he's still requiring morphine for pain control. And I'll let you go ahead and share the results. Okay, a little bit more varied responses here. So um, what I'm hoping you'll take away from the end of this is that offering buprenorphine with naloxone or another medication for opioid use disorder now is indicated and is best practice. And we'll go through some of these caveats like pain control um, and the reason that we selected um, the specific medication that we did in the next slide. Okay, so here's a table of our FDA approved medications for opioid use disorder, which will use the term MOUD. You can see methadone, buprenorphine, and extended release naltrexone. Methadone and buprenorphine being our um, opioid agonists, and naltrexone being the antagonist. You can see on the left that methadone is lower, um, it's much more restricted. You have to have a licensed drug treatment program to prescribe it, highly structured. Um, you know, requires oral daily dosing. Buprenorphine in the middle, we have, it is a partial agonist. We have multiple different delivery methods. We have sublingual tablets and films, which I use most often in my clinic. There is an injectable long acting and implants. Um, options include daily oral to long acting injectables. And this can be prescribed in your outpatient HIV care clinic. I prescribe buprenorphine as my part of my HIV care clinic. Um, very safe, very few um, drug interactions specifically with ART. And then on the far right, you see extended release naltrexone, which is an antagonist. It does require injection monthly, can be provided in outpatient settings. A benefit, it does also treat alcohol use disorders. And I know a lot of us see polysubstance use and alcohol use um, without opioid use disorder where it can be affected. Um, one thing to note, because it's antagonist, your patient will be opioid naive if they do fall out of care and then subsequently use, um, you know, there would be high risk for overdose. We can talk about that more. 
Um, we're hoping that you all will start thinking more about opioid treatment in your clinics. So I've shown here a CAL score, um, clinical opioid withdrawal scale score here, which you may have seen. Um, here you can see the reference um, from where this was adapted, but essentially very straightforward screening questionnaire that your patients can assist you with to determine how far along their withdrawal they are. You can see at the bottom right that if their score is 5 to 12, they're in mild withdrawal. Moderate is a score of around 13 to 24. 25 and greater, you're starting to see pretty severe withdrawal signs. My personal experience is that my patients can tell me pretty much based on how they're feeling, hey, I'm, I'm in really bad withdrawal right now. So also talking to your patients about their relative scale is helpful. And this is helpful because if you're going to start buprenorphine in your clinic or in the hospital, if you're going to start this partial agonist, you need to have your patient in mild to moderate withdrawal in most cases in an outpatient setting. Um, on the left, I'm giving you a reference from an OFID uh, manuscript that uh, Sandy and I did with um, Nick Saval that is really called um, you know, specifically for infectious disease doctors who want to start opioid treatment in their clinic, it walks to a step-by-step -step guide. Here on the left, you can see how most people will wait till their patient has a clinical opioid withdrawal scale of five or greater, and then they'll start a range of doses. Um, some people still prefer to start with the four milligram sublingual buprenorphine. Others will go up to starting with an eight milligram um, buprenorphine dose initially. Um, you can see in the top right, most people need more than 16 milligrams over 24 hours for their opioid use disorder to cut cravings and withdrawal, going up to a dose of about 24 milligrams a day for the buprenorphine component. What I'm showing you on the bottom right is that um, some patients are going to require pain control. Um, they're still on opioids for pain control in the hospital, or maybe they are not able to successfully enter withdrawal. They crave, they return to use with fentanyl. So this is a microdosing protocol on the bottom right. And what you're seeing is that this is an example of how to slowly titrate buprenorphine from day one to seven, such that the buprenorphine will gradually replace their fentanyl or their Lortab on those opioid receptors over time. So two different approaches here and we can talk about that if you have time in the Q&A. And now I'm going to pass it over to um, Dr. Springer. Thanks. Thanks, Ellen. Yeah, we're, we're hoping to give you some practical, uh, you know, tips. Um, there's a lot we could talk about. And, um, you know, that was great, Ellen. And the other aspect of that is um, getting people onto long-acting buprenorphine uh, injectable form now that we have that one can give in the hospital setting or even your clinic setting. Um, so just to, to think about that. And then in those who are naive, who, who might have opioid use disorder, but currently not using, um, they aren't going to show uh, withdrawal symptoms, but you can safely initiate treatment to prevent them from craving and, and using again, say from a discharge from a detox facility or prison and jail. Um, so we're gonna go to illustrate our next point, um, the taking the same case, uh, but denoting some differences. So now here, here he is, uh, you've diagnosed him with opioid use disorder. He has HIV. He's had a recent stroke um, and arrives at, uh, you know, the, the hospital at your HIV clinic post um, uh, discharge. He was started correctly, as uh, Ellen had said, on uh, a buprenorphine naloxone combination tablets. So he's up to 24 milligrams, so three, eight, three tablets of eight milligram, two milligram co-formulated um, sublingual. 
And he's actually doing really well. You've actually treated his opioid use disorder. He's not craving, which is one goal, and he's not withdrawing anymore. So that, those, those are the two goals. And he's not um, using, but he also does report occasional crack cocaine use. So which of the following choices is associated with continued um, treatment? Uh, so buprenorphine or another form of medication treatment for opioid use disorder. A, improved HIV viral load suppression, B, improved quality of life, C, reduction overdose risk, or D, all of the above. And answers, yay. So this is a really knowledgeable group. So um, this integrated care model is really important to understand that when you treat someone's substance use disorder, uh, in this case, opioid use disorder, you can not only improve morbidity and mortality through reduction of the likelihood of harm from overdose risk, you can also improve other things like quality of life, potentially obtaining a job, re reunification with their family, but also from an HIV standpoint, improving uh, what our main goal is for HIV is, is improving and getting to viral suppression. And so next slide, please. So there's, uh, you know, a lot of um, uh, data to support that when you integrate care and by treating the underlying substance use disorder in a person who has HIV, you can improve um, those other outcomes. So being in line with uh, U equals U, and of course, what our goals are for taking care of our patients who are living with HIV, we really want to achieve viral suppression. And uh, this is just to illustrate an earlier study that we conducted a long time ago, right after buprenorphine was recently approved actually for use for prescription by non-licensed OTP um, providers. So people in primary care settings got an X waiver on their DEA license to be used. So this was um, conducted in individuals who all had HIV, who were all, and also all had DSM-4 at that time, opioid dependence, synonymous now with moderate to severe opioid use disorder, who were in prison and then were released. And on the day of release asked if they'd like to initiate buprenorphine to prevent relapse. So this was not a double blind randomized controlled trial, just a cohort study. And the primary outcome was to look at could initiation of buprenorphine to treat and prevent opioid use improve viral suppression. So those who um, were on buprenorphine in green and stayed on, so retained on buprenorphine for six months, had a statistically significantly higher proportion, upwards of 80% having viral suppression at less than 50 copies per milliliter than those who could not stay on the buprenorphine or those who chose not to be on buprenorphine and even included those on methadone with an odds ratio and just as odds ratio of buprenorphine predicting viral suppression at 5.37. Next slide, please. And after that, um, there were those gold standard uh, double-blind randomized control trials that were conducted. And this included at the time, the first time extended release naltrexone actually was approved in the United States to be used for opioid use disorder. So again, it was um, a new treatment for individuals, again, the goal was to initiate um, treatment for their opioid use disorder in all individuals with HIV uh, who are um, going to be released from prison and jail to see again, the primary outcome was an HIV outcome to see if they could improve viral suppression 
or maintain viral suppression at six months post-release. So this was again, a small cohort, but again, a double-blind uh, placebo-controlled trial. And you can see that those who received extended release naltrexone improved their likelihood of achieving viral suppression, again, at less than 50 copies per milliliter compared to those who um, had received placebo. So this idea that integrated treatment of opioid use disorder can improve HIV outcomes. Next slide, um, please. Uh, and then uh, just to point out, although we're talking about a case of individuals with opioid use disorder in the recommendations and um, the guidelines, there are effective treatments, also medication treatments for alcohol use disorder, which is very prevalent. And so another study, again, a double-blind placebo-controlled trial looking at the initiation of, again, a, an FDA-approved medication for alcohol use disorder, alcohol use disorder, extended release naltrexone, started in individuals with HIV um, uh, who were being released from prison and jail, also improved viral suppression in less than 50, um, 200 copies per milliliter on the left hand, and then uh, less than 50 copies um, per milliliter on the right hand side. So this, again, integration of medication treatment for a substance use disorder and in individuals for, with HIV can improve viral suppression. Next slide, please. Um, I, we just wanted to point out too that there is some hesitancy sometimes um, we hear and I've seen in, in, in this idea of um, potentially postponing treatment of a substance use disorder for fear of increased toxicity or increased interactions, drug-drug interactions between potentially antiretroviral therapy and medication treatments for opioid use disorder. This slide is just to show you for buprenorphine in particular, which is the number one treatment for opioid use disorder, that there really are no drug-drug interactions between buprenorphine and our top-line um, in integrase inhibitors. So it shouldn't hold you up. Uh, next case uh, is same same person. Um, he's doing well. He's coming back. He is again. Um, he's taking his antiretroviral therapy, which is great, and he's continuing to take his buprenorphine for his uh, opioid use disorder. And uh, a new thing, though, he's reporting is that he went from occasional stimulant use, which was smoking cocaine, crack cocaine, to now methamphetamine use, and he's now injecting multiple times weekly. So what would be the appropriate next step in this situation? So stop A, stop his uh, uh, buprenorphine, because um, there's no longer a reason, right? Because he's saying he's not using um, opioids anymore. B, stop his uh, buprenorphine, offer him now contingency management for his stimulant use. C, switch his buprenorphine to another, to extended release naltrexone, continue D on the buprenorphine, but um, and provide harm reduction naloxone and E, continue uh, buprenorphine and offer contingency management with, with the buprenorphine. Okay, let's see what you got. This is kind of a trick question. Um, so yeah, D and E were correct. Um, so, you know, the, the big points are, just remember with antiretroviral therapy, right, our goal is to maintain uh, and achieve viral suppression and maintain viral suppression, right? For opioid use disorder, the same thing. We want to achieve that, that they're hopefully not using opioids, um, that they're not craving. And so you're achieving that. We do not want to remove an effective treatment for their underlying opioid use disorder just because they're using stimulants. So we don't want to remove that. Um, and uh, 
Yes, for answer C, there was a, a large randomized control trial looking at the combination of extended release naltrexone and bupropion for the treatment of methamphetamine use disorder, but it's not FDA approved. Um, and so we wouldn't, uh, wouldn't do that yet, but we'll go to the next slide, please. So um, the important uh, points are for stimulant use disorder, unfortunately, there are as yet uh, no um, effective FDA approved uh, medication treatments for stimulant use disorder, which is unfortunate. Um, but there are effective behavioral treatments and the most effective is actually contingency management, which uh, has been found to be very effective to help reduce both cocaine and methamphetamine um, use. Uh, so that would be one thing we could do is, is if you can provide that in your clinic or if you can link them to um, a potential behavioral treatment such as that, that would really be helpful while you maintain their treatment for their opioid use disorder. The other part is we have to remember with all forms of um, substance use that we should be thinking about other harm reduction tools. And that includes if you have the availability in your state, uh, syringe service programs, right? We know that syringe, uh, clean syringes, safe injection kits can um, reduce um, uh, uh, transfer, uh, transmission of HIV and hepatitis C. Uh, also, um, uh, safer injection kits uh, can reduce other infections like uh, abscesses and, and bacteremias. The other part is we fentanyl testing and other drug testing for contamination of uh, stimulants that is now pervasive, including mainly fentanyl. Um, and uh, you know, so educating them, providing those services. Um, and then the new drug that is everywhere and is contaminating all drugs, especially where I am in the Northeast in Connecticut is xylazine, which is a non-opioid. It's a, a veterinarian um, uh, anesthetic and it can cause overdose on its own um, and also really necrotic uh, um, ulcers through injection. So you just wanna, we just wanna educate people about that because you wouldn't reverse an overdose, but they will look like they're overdose. They will, uh, will appear to need uh, naloxone. We still wanna offer naloxone to everyone. So everyone should be providing that if um, a person is identifying that they use opioids or stimulants because the stimulants are really contaminated with fentanyl. Next slide, please. I think the other things that we wanted to just identify too, and it's in the recommendations, is that people who use drugs have a, a lot of other needs. There's a lot of stigma related to not only HIV as we know, but also substance use and many who have been involved in the criminal legal system. So providing low barrier access to services, understanding what their needs are. They may need transportation to the clinic. Um, they may need other um, peer patient navigators to help them or considering bringing services to them where they may, may be homeless, um, may not be able to, to move. So telehealth, mobile health units, visiting nurses, and also thinking about long acting injectable combinations that we know could potentially help them. So these are recommendations that are in uh, the guidelines. Uh, and you know um, what we tried to review here is providing screening integrated uh, with your HIV prevention and treatment services. Um, offering medications, as we just discussed, if you can, if you identify opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder, and if you have stimulant use disorder, providing or linking them to uh, behavioral forms of care like contingency management. Next slide. Um, and then the last part of the recommendations are, um, you know, what we just discussed here is that 
don't withhold treatment for opioid and alcohol use disorder. If they have HIV, it's not gonna, you're not gonna hurt anybody. Um, there's no interactions. And then also, as we just discussed, uh, offering other um, low barrier access to services um, for these patients. And I'll end there for questions. Thank you. Great, thank you all very much. Um, got a couple questions that are, have come in. Uh, we'll try to get to as many as we can. What about administ uh, if you have somebody in the administration of your hospital, your clinic, who are not kind <laughs> about treating uh, substance use disorder? Um, what do you What do you say? How do you fight that fight? You know, I recently started a clinic here at the 1917 clinic and um, did not have that experience. Fortunately, our administrator was very supportive, but um, our data has really spoken for itself. I mean, we've been able to recruit people back to clinic who did not were not interested in treating their HIV, not a priority. But guess what? They're ready to um, get into recovery for their opioid use disorder. Or they're homeless. And so providing this service has really brought people back who had fallen out of care. And frankly, our viral load suppression rates are, are, are really impressive. You know, 60 to 70 percent of our patients who are injecting opioids have viral load suppression. Um, and that has continued to improve over time um, as we've stabilized these folks. You know, it was an early clinic. So people were in that three to six month window, um, Sandy, which, you know, but as the clinic has aged and the population has had more opportunities to have this comprehensive wraparound um, safety net clinic that, you know, our Ryan White funding is supportive of, 340B in some examples, um, that the outcomes that we've seen have, have just really made it a no-brainer to continue this, this service. Okay. And then there was a question about the sublingual um, uh, bup dose and in the outpatient setting, uh, you, I think you used what you covered. Is there, are there data from inpatient uh, studies uh, looking at this? Can you all talk about that quickly? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, there's more and more addiction medicine services, but also addiction psychiatry has been doing this for years. Um, we actually are currently doing um, uh, an NIH NIH sponsored study of trying to initiate injectable buprenorphine in hospitalized patients with infections and um, opioid use disorder and doing more rapid inductions, um, as well as these low dose transitions or what we call, you know, what used to be called microdosing, and just recently published a case series that shows that it can be effectively done on. Um, so yes, in patient settings, um, in very common, and uh, we're seeing more and more of that currently, especially in the day and age of fentanyl. Yeah, and I want to add that Laura Fanucci, and you may be familiar with this as well, in Kentucky is using sub like long acting injectables with OPAT. So you can imagine for a lot of these complicated admissions where you have long act long long term vancomycin needs, you know they've got bone and joint infections, they've got endocarditis, giving them a long acting injectable for their opioid use disorder as they're leaving to help keep them in care, complete antibiotics, um, help hit all these important infection and addiction outcomes that um, Sandy mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And in our remaining uh, two minutes, because it may take that long, uh, there's a big interest in contingency management. Mm -hmm. Could you get more specific about exactly what you do to uh, 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 aggressively do uh, contingency management? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not saying it's not saying that it's hard. It's easy. It's hard. Um, but you know, it's basically an incentivizing. Um, you know, reduced substance use. So it could be, you know, 
and there, there's many forms of that. It doesn't have to be monetary. It could be, um, you know, certificates, uh, 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 transportation efforts, um, cell phone um, minutes, um, things like that. And we've seen this right with HIV, viral suppression, um, kind of incentivizing that has worked. But definitely, um, you know, there's a, there's a huge group of literature on um, contingency management and different ways that it's done for stimulant use disorder. The VA is one of the Veterans Administration Healthcare System is probably one of the um, groups that has done quite, quite a lot of research on that and still uses that to this day. Um, but there's a whole host of ways to do that, yeah. And, you know, for those of us who are in states where it's not politically acceptable, I, you know, I can't imagine a day where we are in Alabama, um, you know, giving out cash for, for, I would love it, but I just can't envision it. But one of the things we do in our clinic is um, extending the time between visits, which is patients love that, you know, initially they're unstable. I need to see them frequently. I'm checking on them weekly, monthly. And one of the biggest gifts I give them is when, hey, you're doing great. You're taking your meds, you're taking your ART, your virus is suppressed. Let's see in two months. You know, that's one of the biggest gifts for them because it's time away from work, childcare, transportation, all the things that we try to help with. But that is an easy way that we incentive. And I don't, I don't know, Sandy, your, your thoughts on that, but that's one thing that patients really appreciate. Oh yeah, no, um, anything. And I think that's finding out what their needs are, right? Mm -hmm. And something that you think might be incentivizing may not be, but just identifying what it could be. And it could very well be, um, you know, uh, transportation could be food, could be in this time where I'm pointing out as a snowstorm right now, could be clothing, <laughs> could be uh, lots of really important things. So, yeah. Great. Well, this has been really helpful and we, we really love the idea that uh, this new addition to the guidelines uh, is in this uh, iteration that just came out uh, two weeks ago. So thank you very much.